Thank you. My name is Jim. I am an alcoholic. Hi, Jim. And uh, I am not the reason you're here. I'm a good excuse for an event, <laughs> and the event is what I think keeps us involved in our own recovery. I really do. Um, and I think that guys uh, like me are uh, pretty flabbergasted, and I've always had this feeling of awe that uh, it wasn't long ago that no one ever wanted to hear a word I had to say again. And it seems like a short time later, God has graced me and blessed me with the ability to meet so many wonderful people, take me from the, from the bottom of the mountain to the top. And, uh, and I mean in my heart. Not necessarily in every aspect of my life, but in my heart. And I keep running across my friend Don C., who will be speaking tonight. It's like everywhere I go. He thinks I'm following him around the country. I know he does. Little retreat in Pennsylvania. I fly into Pittsburgh. I rent a car and drive two, three hours into the mountains to this little tiny retreat that they're having. I'm a speaker at a little retreat. There's Don Cassini. It's Don C. In Toronto, a couple of weeks ago, I run into him, and, uh, and I look at the program, and he's not one of the speakers at this, but he's going to be showing a video. And the video is uh, something that him and a group of people worked very hard on to put together about the history of Alcoholics Anonymous and Dr. Bob's house that he's had a great deal to do with. Uh, and, and I got to tell you, I, there was only about 30 or 40 people in the room to watch the video, and there was thousands at this conference. And, uh, and he worked his tail off in having this video done. And uh, I watched this video, and when I got done, I looked around, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room, including my own. I thought I, I knew the history of Alcoholics Anonymous pretty well, and I do, but I didn't feel the history of Alcoholics Anonymous the way I felt it after I watched that tape. Uh, that was an awakening for me in a very small way in the moment, but a very big way in my life as I, as I look at the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And tonight when he speaks, I'll tell you what, if you, if you, if you haven't seen that tape, uh, you're really missing something. And I had to get that plug in or he'd be really pissed at me. So, <laughs> And uh, and last week I was, uh, two weeks ago I was I spoke in, uh, in, in, in Vancouver in British Columbia, so some of the most beautiful country I'd ever seen. And I was honored to be asked to go there and give a talk. And it was good Friday morning. And, I, and there were two hours earlier there than we are back here and, uh, and I got very early and I went out for a walk and I walked around Vancouver, British Columbia and I looked around at the mountains, snow-capped mountains and the Atlantic Ocean and you know, just in incredible beauty of this, this place. But you know, I got to tell you, I, uh, I, I, I kind of was, uh, was kind of sad that morning. Not because it was Good Friday, but I'll tell you what, what, what occurred to me is that I really love being at home now. Now, that, that might not sound like much, but you know, in my earlier days of sobriety, when I'd go on fishing trips and stuff, because I'm a fisherman, and I'd go on these fishing trips, and the end of the trip had come about, I'd always have this sense of regret, because now I've got to go back home. And, and now I go to these places to talk, and, and it's an honor and a privilege and a joy to be here, but you know, it is so nice to feel like I want to go back home. I want to go back home to my wife and to my kids. I want to go back home to my friends. And everybody here is my friend, but that is just a small part of what's happened in my life. Um, from a guy from as early as he can remember did not feel that he had any belonging or any purpose or fit anywhere. I don't have a conscious recollection from the time I have a memory of feeling good about much anything uh, until I took my first drink. Now, I was a kid who had learning problems. Today they call it attention deficit disorder. They, they have all kinds of scientific names for things that they didn't have 40 years ago. 40 years ago when you were slow they called you special. You were special and you went to school on the special bus. It's a little one. Along with the other special kids, okay? And I'd look around at the other special kids and I wasn't quite as special as they were, you know, and I knew <laughs> 
Now, I knew something wasn't right with this picture, and I didn't like the way it felt, and I, you know, and I got flunked in the fourth grade, and then I was introduced to Sister Mary Edward, who was supposed to enlighten me. Sister Mary Edward was 6'3 and had a beard. She was the scariest, most frightening human being I had ever laid eyes on to that point and had enough of my hair to knit an afghan by the time she was done with me. So my early recollection of, uh, of God and religion and, and the things that we talk about and being special and, you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was the making for a confused young child who had something wrong with him long before he ever picked up his first drink. That's not everybody's story. That's my story. The fact of the magic, uh, ma matter is I saw the magic of alcohol working in my father's life, who is alcoholic, and uh, today suffers from Alzheimer's, who today I have a great relationship with and love dearly, but I saw the magic, I smelled the magic. He would come home and I'd smell that, that smell. And he'd play with us, and he'd wrestle with us, and, he'd, and we'd romp. And, and, but, but when he didn't have that smell, it was, did you do your homework, get your hair out of your eyes, eat your dinner, and that was the end of the story. And as that smell, you know, it, it, something kept changing in him. That, now, now I'd smell that smell on him and I'd be, become afraid of him because he was progressing into his illness. But I knew there was something powerful and magic about what he was doing. I, I saw it in him. And I wanted it. And, and you've heard the song, All My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys, but Willie Nelson, my, I, my, mine was All My Heroes Have Always Been Felons. And I had... <laughs> I had, there was a guy named Jerry Capley who I, I, brought, I just talked him into letting get me that first drink. Jerry Capley finally said, okay, punk. I was 12 years old. He took me up on the pool hall roof in Lamont, Illinois with a bottle of Muscatel and a bottle of MD-2020. And I proceeded to drink it. He kept waiting for me to say, enough, this is horrible. And I just kept drinking it. And it was like magic. I mean, really bulletproof. I was bulletproof. For the first time in my life, I felt powerful. I felt control. I felt as good as. What eventually happened is I rolled off the landing onto the second portion of that roof and I broke my nose and I, I staggered down the stairs and I fell across Stephen Street over to Main Street and, and I walked to the, my mom and dad's two-bedroom apartment in Lamont and I stumbled up the stairs. I fell in through the screen door. They knew instantly something was wrong with Jimmy. He was bleeding, his nose was crooked, he stunk of alcohol, my mom was crying and screaming, my dad had me by the hair, he's whacking me in the back of the head, they throw me in the tub, I barf in the tub. It's chaos in my house, everyone's crying. They put me to bed, I'm grounded for life. I wake up the next day with, with my very first hangover and I go to school and I say to my friends, you guys gotta try this. <laughs> and, and, and I say that because <clears throat> what it is, as I understand it today, is it indicates the power that alcohol had over me from the very beginning. I remember my first drunk, unlike a lot of people. I remember the power and the magic of that first drunk, and no matter what the consequences were of it, they did not matter. What mattered was what I felt when I took that drink. And, and you know what? That's the beginning of the very essence of self-centeredness uh, in my life. It was all now about recapturing the feeling I had that very first night after that very first drink. And I'll tell you what, you talk about pursuing it to the gates of insanity or death, you know, the reason I'm here is because of that first page of chapter three, that, you know, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker is that somehow some he will control and enjoy his drinking. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it to the gates of insanity or death. That, that doesn't just apply to the, to the drinking alcoholic. It applies to the pilot light that's lit within me. The pilot light that's lit within me called alcoholism will never go out. It will burn forever. And my friend Urban, the man that took me to my first AA meeting, said, you know, when the flames of life are burning your ass, it's a bad time to learn the principles of oxidation. <laughs> and I was a little too new. To, I didn't even know what oxidation meant. What he was saying was, you know, what you've what you got to learn, kid, is uh, that that pilot light will burn in you from now the day you die. And it's a very patient, cunning, baffling, and powerful illness. 
and it lies in wait. It lies as dormant, almost dead. Okay, almost imperceptible. Okay, and, and through the process of my my drinking career, I was in a in a constant pursuit of regaining what I once got from those first several years of my drinking, and it wasn't all bad. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff. You know, there's a saying that you know, my, my worst day sober is better than my best day drunk. Not for me. I don't believe that for me. I believe my best day drunk was phenomenal. And that if I could have kept my best day drunk, I'd have stayed that way. But what I have is a disease that progresses and spirals downward and brings me into new places and I never wanted to be. I met a young girl in, in high school and and we became romantically linked and uh, through the process of my alcoholism, I uh, began to destroy her life a bit at a time and uh, and we ended up getting married and uh, and I began to to say and do things I didn't mean to do and end up in places I didn't mean to end up and I began to realize early on that something was very wrong with me. And one of the things about my alcoholism, at least in my perception, is you see, when I would say, I remember falling on my knees in the foyer of our house. We had a little house in Lamont, and with a, I was on a three-dayer, and I fell on my knees, and I, and I had those flowers in my hand, and, and I said, I swear to God, honey, I'll never do this again to you. I'll never treat you that way again. I'll never hurt you that way again. The point is that I meant it. I did mean it. I mean, the tears were real, and the love I had for her in my heart was real. It was truly real. And the next night, I was back in the bar with the paycheck, doing it all over again, saying to myself, how can I be doing this? Why am I doing this? I can't stop doing this. And I couldn't stop doing it. And that's, you know, the thing that kills alcoholics like me is, is guilt, shame, and remorse. Once I can't block it out anymore, sober, I got to get drunk, okay? Drunk wasn't my problem, sober was. I couldn't stand sober because I couldn't stand the guilt, shame, and remorse. When I said it, I meant it, yet I couldn't live it. We talk about the word love. I'd tell her I love her, but I couldn't show her I loved her in a responsible, consistent way because of my alcoholism. I'd look out the front window of our house, and I'd see the guy across the street playing with his two little daughters on a Sunday morning, and I'd think, that poor guy, look at him, he's trapped. The bar, it's, it's 9.30. Vizin is going to be open at 10, Okay. It's party time. And look at that poor sap. They got their little dresses on. He's got his little suit on. And they all got to go to church. <laughs> see, I didn't see the world the way that it really was. I had this disease of perception that put me in places I didn't want to be. I mean, you know, when she says, go get a loaf of bread, and I'm, on the, I'm on a moped, okay? And I end up at the Brat Stop in Wisconsin, which is 95 miles away. <laughs> going down 294. <laughs> and I got five bucks and I'm out of gas. And what do I do with the five bucks when I get to the broad stop in Wisconsin? Drink beer. I don't get gas to go home. I, you know, I mean, it was, it, there was, what happened was unpredictability came into my life. I couldn't predict what I was going to do next. And yet I couldn't, stop the, I couldn't stop the actions I was taking. No matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did, I thought I was the ant on the log, you know. I mean, I had the basic denial mechanism in place. It was her, it was the job, it was this. It was like the, the, the alcoholic counselor and, and the alcoholic. And the, and, the, and the counselor says to the alcoholic, he says, now, Timmy, he's got a glass of water and a glass of whiskey. And he says, now, watch this, Tim. And he takes the night crawler, takes the night crawler, and he puts it in the water, and the worm swims around, and... He takes it out, no ill effects. He drops it in the whiskey, and the, and, the, and the nightcrawler dies like that. And the counselor says, now what does that tell you, Timmy? And Timmy says, it tells me if I don't want to get worms, I've got to drink more whiskey. <laughs> that is the kind of thinking. <laughs> that is the kind of thinking that I relished as an alcoholic. I was an angle shooter, okay? I was an angle shooter, okay? And uh, let me tell you when it all kind of came crashing down on me. Well, one of the many times. I think I had a series of mini bottoms that brought me to my final frontier. Um, 
I had, I had, uh, my, my nephew Tommy was eight years old and it was time for him to be an athlete. I was an athlete even though I quit school and I never, I never got to college and I never got even out of high school, but I was really a pretty decent athlete. And, uh, and we have lived in a small town outside of Chicago and everybody played baseball, okay? And that's my nephew. He didn't want to play Little League Baseball and his parents weren't pushing him in to play Little League Baseball. His Uncle Jim was pushing him in to play Little League Baseball and I said, you will play Little League Baseball. And he said, but Uncle Jim, I really don't want to play Little League Baseball. And I said, but, but you know what? You're going to shame your family if you don't. You're going to shame your family if you don't play Little League. We all played the Little League Baseball. And I promised him a quarter, a hit, and a dollar home run. And finally, after weeks of browbeating him, he finally decided he'd play Little League Baseball. And uh, so the first time up to bat in a Little League Baseball game, the ball hit him in the chest, and uh, he went down to his knees, and, and we're all watching. And uh, the coach says, you all right? And he gets back up, and he's holding his chest. He says, yeah. And then he goes back down to his knees, and then he falls just face first, and, uh, and he died right on the field. And, uh, you know, that was it. That was the end of the line. That was the end of the line. I was 24, 23, 24 years old, and, uh, and I killed my nephew. In my mind, he died because of me. And uh, I remember my mother, who was, she's my hero. My mother heard me speak for the first time in 20 years last week. She sat out in the audience, and I was able to give a talk in front of my mother. Uh, I remember when he was buried I remember looking at my mom in church I was drunk I remember looking to my left and my mother was there and they were singing a hymn I don't know what the hymn was but I remember looking at her sitting up straight tears running down her face but singing that hymn with a look of strength and conviction on her face that, that this little boy was going to be delivered into God's hands. And I looked at her, and I thought, I killed him. But look at the strength in that woman. I mean, I saw something in her in that moment that I knew I would never have in me. And uh, it was like one of those Kodak moments. We all have them. We all have them. We all have little Kodak moments, okay? Some of them good, some of them not so good. And so... The spiraling downward continued rapidly. Uh, during the process of all this, of course, I got to, you know, my wife left me and, and I became uh, meaner. Um, I began to do some really bad stuff out there that I won't get into. Uh, I made money in ways that no human being should make money. And uh, I remember sitting in a bar on a Sunday morning. We're all sitting at the card table drinking our eggs and beer. We're all hungover. We're all smoking dope and the smoke eater's going above us and we're drinking and they're all by biker buddies. And, and I pick up a Time Life magazine and I flip it open and, and, and this caption just like jumps out at me. And it says, there is nothing so tragic as when the human spirit dies before the body. And I burst into tears. If you ever want to see a bunch of badasses run, start crying, okay? Because that table vacated in a heartbeat. I sat there and I cried because I knew exactly what that statement meant. I knew exactly what they meant. Because my spirit was dying and I knew it. I had already done everything I could do. My parents had me at psychiatrists when I was seven and eight years old. I've talked to priests, ministers, psychiatrists, psychologists, geographical cures, changed drinks, changed drugs, changed women, changed jobs, changed, you name it, I changed it, and nothing, nothing, but nothing relieved the pain of sober living. Okay? Of sober living. Downstairs from my mom and dad, by then I had nowhere to live. I was living in a van. And occasionally they'd let me back into their apartment. Downstairs from them lived a guy named Urban. Urban was an undertaker. And Urban was sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, and I knew it. And I'd walk down those stairs not feeling so good and hung over, and he'd slap me on the back. And, what a beautiful day, Jim, huh? 
you know. He knew. I mean, he was just sticking it right to me. <laughs> and he's planting his flowers and beautifying this old building we lived in that my folks lived in. And he never shoved Alcoholics Anonymous down my throat. Not once. Not one time. And Urban played a key role in my getting to AA. Him and my mom, they'd, they'd do their ciphering and talking. And I remember one night I was sitting out on the front porch of those steps in that apartment building, and I had just, I drank what they call the bucket of blood, castaways bar. Somehow I ended up with a knife stuck in my shoulder, and I was sitting on the front porch of the steps and bleeding and got a quart of VO between my legs, and everyone comes out and looks at me and looks at the stars and says, Nice night, ain't it? And walks back into his walks back into his into his apartment, never saying, you know what, Jim? You better do something about your drinking. You know what, Jim? You got a real problem. You you need to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Not one time did he shove AA in my face. And by not doing that, he saved my life. My last night of drinking was uh did you ever have a family meeting? You know, like you know, the family meeting, a 2 a.m. kind of family meeting. You either come home and enlighten them or, you you know. Well, the last weekend of my drinking on a Friday night, I woke everyone up in my house, my mom's house, at 2, two o'clock in the morning. My sister was in from Arizona. She was a nun. My brother, who's like a tofu-eating, sort of real mellow, like I'm, he's more like Gandhi. I'm more like John Belushi. We, we were... A med- he's a meditator, a very spiritual, really s- sweetheart of a guy. And, and I woke everybody up and sat him at the kitchen table. We were My folks had gone broke, and uh, it was a little apartment, and we sat at a card table. And, uh, and I said, you know, i got to tell you, I'm either going to die this weekend or I'm going to make you proud of me, and I don't know which. And I meant it. With that, my brother dove over the table and started choking me to death, <laughs> saying... But you don't have to die. And I'm going, (laughs) and I bolted out of there and I headed back down to my drinking haunt in Wilmington, Illinois. On the way down there, I'd always see the same guy. I'd see this guy on the side of the road, on the front of the road, off I-55, collecting bottles. I'd see him in the daytime when I'd go down there. He's collecting bottles, collecting beer bottles, whiskey bottles, so he could get his his next drink. And and I looked, I, I remember I started looking at that guy thinking, he's got it made. He's got, he's got it made. You know why he's got it made? Because he has no conflict in his life. He's given up. There is no, I mean, what kills me is that I still have conflict. I'm not amoral. I have guilt. I can't be alcoholic without it. It's a necessary part of the ingredients of me getting here. Okay? And so I went back down to Wilmington, Illinois that night, and did everything I could possibly do to end my life, short of putting a bullet in my mouth, from Russian roulette on down the line. I'd started dating a girl, and about 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, I don't know what time it was, I was sitting in a, in a parking lot in Wilmington, Illinois, early, early, early in the morning, the sun wasn't up yet, and I heard a knock on the window, and I turned and I looked, I had the gun in my lap, the bottle between my legs, and I had a syringe hanging out of my arm. And that was the girl I was dating and her mother. And, uh, and what they did was they looked at me in a way that I'd never seen anyone look at me before. Um, kind of the way you'd look at a deer that got hit by a car. That's not quite dead. You know, the, uh, the kindest thing you can do for it is is to kill it. I mean, that, is, that was my next little moment of clarity. It's the way they looked at me. I finally saw in their look, reflected back to me what I had become. And, and uh, the next morning I called Urban. By then he had moved out of that apartment. I said, Urban, you got to help me. I can't live this way anymore. I can't. I just can't. My spirit is... My spirit's dead. You know, if you're out there and you're newer and you have regret and remorse, I can tell you this for sure. I do not regret the past, nor do I wish to shut the door on it. It took every drink I drank. It took every negative thing I did. It took every heart I broke 
for me to get to the point where I could pick that phone up and say, Urban, I need help. Now, he had a funeral the day, that was on a Sunday. On Monday, he had a funeral. He said, I'll take you Tuesday night. I'll be at your house at 10 to 7. But they didn't know what to do with me on Monday, okay? By now, you know, I'm starting to vibrate. And, and so my, my dad, of all people, packs a six-pack in the cooler and takes me fishing. He says, now, these aren't for you, son. <laughs> I said, on the way down there, I said to him, I said, you know what, Dad? I said, I can't imagine life without drinking. I can't even conceive of life without drinking. And he said the most profound words I had heard up to that point. He said, son, you're a Hutchinson. They'll teach you how to drink like a man in AA. And that got me to my first AA meeting. Okay? Urban was supposed to be at my house at 7 o'clock on Tuesday night. I was starting to go through some pretty rough withdrawals by then, and I was getting very sick. Urban showed, and I was going to go down to Vise and get something to get the shakes off me because I was really, really starting to feel like I was going to go into DTs. I was getting so sick, and uh, Urban pulled up 10 minutes early. You know, undertakers generally aren't early, <laughs> okay? And Urban pulled up, and he took me to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that first meeting was the Lamont Oaks group. And I had probably my first true spiritual experience. And this is, I think, to this day why I'm so driven on working with newcomers. I hadn't felt loved. I was loved, but hadn't felt loved. Nor could I give love the way I wanted to for many, many years. And when I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, a very powerful thing happened to me that I hadn't felt in my whole life for the first time that I can remember. I felt like I was in a room full of people that actually wanted me to be there. Now, I had my REO Speedwagon t-shirt on with the cut-off sleeves, okay? The rotten teeth going, the long, dirty hair. I was starting to get a nice shade of yellow about me. I had alcohol poisoning, so I had what they call wine sores all over my arms. And I'm waiting for people to run away. And they ran to me. And they put their arms around me. And they told me that if they could do it, I could do it. And I mean, I was literally, I broke into tears. I felt like for the first time in my life, I had some hope. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how profound that first experience was and how dynamic it was and how important it was that those guys came up to me. And what's so amazing is I remember every one of their faces. I remember their faces, and most every one of those guys are still sober in AA and are still a big part of my life today. And so on the way home, Irvin said, there's nothing you cannot do if you take these steps and don't pick up that first drink. And when I got home that night, my folks had let me back into their house. I had told my mother, my sweet mother, I mean, if you ever met her, you'd, you'd know she's a saint. I told her a hundred times that I'm going to change. I told her a hundred times that it's going to be different this time. I, I'm going to really try. I mean, she tried everything from, she even made me a beer chart once. Okay, now, Jimmy, if you only have three here on this day and three, she tried everything. I mean, you know, my dad bargained with me with his, he'd be outside, be in the jail. He'd have his hands through the bar. He'd be crying. He'd be crying, saying, Jimmy, you've got to stop drinking. And I'd say, I'll, I'll stop if you'll stop. And he'd say, we'll talk about it when we get home. Because <laughs> he didn't want to stop either. And so I had told her, I had told her hundreds of times that it'll be different again. I won't do it this time. And that night when I came home from that AA meeting, I looked at my mother. I said, Ma, I don't think I ever have to drink again. And for the first time, my mother looked at me in her eyes, little Italian eyes filled up with tears, and she said, I don't think you do either. And that's the first time I remember her ever saying that to me, and I'm telling you, <clears throat> it was pretty, pretty special. But then she got this evil look in her eye, okay? Like she was being transformed. <clears throat> and she said something to me that I didn't understand then. I understand it now. She said, son... 
you will never know the depths of love that I have for you until your heart beats outside your body. I did not understand what she meant. And what she meant was you'll never know how much I love you until you have a child of your own and you realize. Because that's your heart beating in that child. And then she looked at me and she said, you better take care of my heart. I'll never forget it. You better take care of my heart. As if to say, my heart can't take much more of this. And that was the beginning. You know, I wandered around that first meeting with a guy that Urban introduced me to. His name was Paul Kay. And uh, the meeting was on sponsorship. I don't remember anything that was said. I don't remember a word that was said. I just remember the feeling that I had. And I was really ugly. I mean, dirty ugly. <clears throat> remember that little duck in the old cartoons that follow the other ducks around and say, are you my mommy? Remember that? Well, I was like walking around with this guy, Paulie, and I was saying, Paulie, are you my sponsor? And he'd say, he said, no, 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 he'd say. Here's what you do. You take time, look around, we'll get you to some meetings, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he said, how about going to a meeting on Thursday? And I said, Thursday? It's, it was just, it's Tuesday, we just went to a meeting. We're going to go again Thursday? I mean, it's like, it's the most amazing phenomenon. I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous dying. I had the most electrifying experience of feeling welcome for the first time in my life that I can remember, a place that I really felt like I belonged and that I had a chance to live, okay? I had this awakening. Isn't too much of this A&A bad for you? Okay? When a kid goes from kindergarten into the first grade, the kid knows she, she or he doesn't know. When they go from eighth grade into high school, there's trepidation and fear because they're going into a whole new thing. They know that they don't know. When they go from high school into college, they know they don't know. There's fear. When you go from college into graduate school or medical school or law, you're like the new kid on the block. You know, it's amazing. I could come into AA and three weeks later, I know everything. Okay? You know? And so, you know what I did? He said, you know, I, I fell in love with Paulie. Paulie said, we're going to go on a journey to the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're going to stop the two-door syndrome. And I said, what's the two-door syndrome? He said, well, there's two doors. He said, there's one that says, life ha happy ever after, and there's one that has a question mark over it. And he said, and here's what you do. You get up, and you go to the door with the question mark, and you open it, and a guy hits you on the head with a hammer, and you go back and you sit down. And you ponder. And you get back up and you go back to the door with the question mark and the guy hits you on the head with the hammer again. And you go back and you sit down and you ponder. Then you get back up and you go back to the door with the question mark and you open up and the guy's gone and you go looking for him. Okay? <laughs> We're going to teach you how to stop looking for the guy with the hammer, Jim. Okay? <clears throat> and, and, and this guy... <clears throat> like was coming to pick me up and take me to meetings. I, I wasn't living in the van anymore. Uh, I, I couldn't legally drive yet. You know, I was $28,000 in debt to the IRS, waiting for them to come and take me to jail. There was warrants out for me. I mean, I had a lot, of, a lot of baggage. This guy was coming to my house as many nights a week as he could, okay, and get me to AA meetings, okay? And I was wondering, what's the payback? What, what does he want from me? And I would ask questions like, is it okay to smoke dope? Well, I mean, remember, <clears throat> as a newcomer, I am convinced that the solution to the problem is putting down the drink. Okay? I didn't have a big problem with dope. What's an occasional joint? Maybe heighten my awareness when I read the big book. <laughs> he said, no, I tried that. <laughs> and I got drunk. <laughs> I thought that the, the idea here was to put down alcohol and then that was the solution to the problem. I didn't know it was only the prerequisite for recovery, that the recovery came through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and that he was my guide through those 12 steps. I thought putting it down was the answer. I didn't realize that just putting it down meant that I was still full of my garbage. My guilt, my shame, my remorse, my anger, my intense anger, my loneliness, my self-hatred. 
just putting it down. I put it down a hundred times and picked it back up. But yet, my thought was AA is about not drinking. And it's not. It's about recovering. And in recovery, I learn to live life on life's terms. And he, said, he was a runner. He was a jogger. I smoked three packs a day. In the beginning, I must have drank a gallon of coffee a day easy. Okay, easy. I mean, me and my buddy Forrest, in the, we were so wired on coffee and, ca- and nicotine that we were, we'd be in the restaurant till four in the morning. We'd be the only two. I mean, we had every AA problem solved by the time we were three weeks over. We were just, and I'm smoking. My, my fingers are yellow. I smoke so much, okay? And he wants me to start jogging with him, okay? I said, fine. I mean, you know, I love this guy. I want to hang with this guy, okay? So I get, I don't know how what joggers wear. Jesus, I've been a street thug for, so I, I find this little skinny black, pair of pants under they almost look like underwear i had black socks up to my knees i had a i had my uh my dago tea on with my cigarettes in the sleeve i had a towel wrapped around my neck i'd park at fricker's fruit stand jog a half mile to deandre's seminary throw up run back to the truck and have a cigarette and a cup of coffee that was the beginning of my training and people were looking at me funny it wasn't my perception okay Okay, so the day comes for my first race. You know, now, remember, I'm, I'm, I'm in the game, but I'm not quite in the game. See, I filter things a little differently. You know, it's like he'll say, Jim, I want you to pray every morning on your knees and every night on your knees. But I, I'm not, I don't believe. He says, I don't care if you believe. I want you to, I want you to pretend, and I want you on your knees. That's what he says. What comes into my filter? If you wake up on time and you don't forget, and it's not inconvenient, you know. Uh, I want you at a meeting every night. If I can't get you there, I'll find someone who can get you there. I want you to get a job. Well, I got the job. Lay inside in December, okay? <laughs> I got the job. Now, he said, I want you at a meeting every night. What comes through the filter is, well, I'm working now. And Hogan's Heroes is on. And I'm tired. So if I'm not tired and Hogan's Heroes ain't on, maybe I'll go to an A&A meeting just to fill the void. Everything he told me, I would filter in the way I wanted to hear it, okay? And so he prepared me for this first race. It was a, it was a, a 5K race, which is three miles, okay? There's 300 people in the race, and he looks at me and he says, you're not going to win this race, okay? Don't try to win the race. Don't even pretend you think you can. It's, you're not. This, you know, remember, Jim, Alcoholics Anonymous and what we are involved in is about finishing, not winning. It's about the climb, not getting to the top. Just finish the three-mile race. And I'm going like this, and I'm thinking I'm going to beat every son of a bitch in this field. Okay? <laughs> and I look around me. I mean, I'm looking. You know, I mean, look. I, yeah, I walked into my first AA meeting weighing 135 pounds because I had diarrhea for six months. But I walked in, you know how some guy, you know, they cut their sleeves off their shirts and they walk like this, but they're really skin and bones, but they think they're muscular. Well, I looked around this field of runners and I saw fat people, thin people, old people, young people. I saw one woman that had to be seven months pregnant. Okay, I'm thinking there ought to be a law against that. What is that? Okay, and I'm thinking, you know what? I'm going to win. It's my race. I mean, I, I only took parts, bits and pieces of his advice up till then. I wasn't going to start digesting it all now. I'm going to prove something to him. The gun goes off, I sprint. And I'm winning. I'm, I'm winning. I don't realize I can't sprint three miles. <laughs> I start getting a cramp in my side. and You know, about a mile goes by and all the footsteps are going by. I mean, I'm thinking, okay, okay, okay. The top third. I'll be in the top third. And I get a cramp in my other side. Now I'm like, I'm like running with my butt cheeks squeezed together because <laughs> everything hurts. More and more footsteps are going by me. I'm thinking, okay, at least in the, in the last 25%. And then, and then there's so many people going by now. I'm like, I got, I'm, I'm ready to go to the bathroom with my pants. Both my sides are hurting me. You know, my black socks are down at my ankles. There's one set of footsteps behind me. And I'm thinking, my God, not last place. <laughs> and the pregnant woman passes me up.
And, and Polly is standing at the finish line like this. And on the way home, we had a long talk about surrender. And then we began really to take these steps and watch the miraculous journey of Alcoholics Anonymous unfold in my life and in the lives of countless others. Now, if you're new and you think it's all a flat line, you know, putting it down, let me tell you something. It's okay to not be okay. I have not come into Alcoholics Anonymous, walked in the doors, and then had everything go my way. What AA promised me is I would be able to live life on life's terms without having to drink to stand it. The promises all came true in my life. The biggest one, not regretting the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I share things with people that I know are necessary for me to experience in order to stand up here today. I know that the way that God entered into my heart and into my soul, my higher power, was through taking these 12 steps. But life has not been a flat line, okay? Um, I, had a, I, uh, I, I started up a business uh, some years ago and was, was doing very, very well at it. I met, I met the woman of my dreams. Uh, we got married, and uh, I was the kind of guy that was never going to be a dad because I was afraid I couldn't be a dad. I was afraid I would end up like my dad was. And uh, so we got married, and, and uh, she got pregnant with our first child. And I knew that my first child would be a, would be a boy, you know, like in The Godfather, if your first child be a masculine child, he says to Luca Brasi. And I knew my first kid was going to be a boy. I just knew it, because I had boy sperm in me. They're all boy sperm. <laughs> right up there. So we're in, the, we're in the delivery room. It's finally time to give birth. And my wife, Emily, she's pushing. And I'm going, push, push, push. Because I'm coach. I'm supposed to be coaching. She says, stop yelling at me. She says, stop yelling at me. So she's pushing. And, and the baby comes out. And I turn to the doctor. And I said, baby, this, the doctor, this boy has no penis. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was hilarious. No one laughed. No one thought it was funny. <laughs> you know? My first child was born. Her name is Megan. <laughs> Little Maggie. She's six years old now. And, uh, light of my life. Light of a guy like me having a child. Can you imagine? A guy like me having a wife. Having a wife. Had a good business. I just, I was living the dream. And then, uh, then the business went away. I was in the medical business and all the Medicaid and Medicare laws changed one day and you know one day I'm making six figures and the next day I don't have a business and I live in a nice home and I have a little girl a little baby girl and a wife and now I'm deep in fear you know when one door closes another door always opens but it's hell in the hallway okay I've had time in the hallway in sobriety and uh, one day I was uh, I had another awakening. I was, I was in the state of deep, morbid contemplation about the, the loss of my business and, you know, which dumpsters we were going to eat out of. And, you know, I, my little girl, Megan, I put her in my, my car, a car I didn't have before I got sober, and, and drove her to my mom and dad's house, a mother and father who wouldn't allow me in their lives till I got sober, got them back into my life, left the home, that I never had as my wife, who I never would have had waved goodbye to us, that wife that loves me. And I'm in this morbid contemplation about the horrors of my life, and I bring them over to Grandma and Grandpa's, and I bring Megan over there, and my ma's sitting on the piano here, and Megan's in the middle, and my dad is next to her, and my head is down on the couch like this. They don't know that this had happened, and... Uh, and they start playing the piano and singing. And I see my little girl in the middle going like this. And I see my mom and dad with their arms around her. And I say, you know what? You're missing the movie. You're living in the problem and you're going to miss the whole movie. You know, I was so ashamed of the lack of faith I had at that time in my life. See, I thought it wasn't okay to not be okay. I found out it is okay to not be okay. It is okay to have fear. 
it is okay. It's not okay to not do something about it. Okay? And I saw that picture of my daughter, my mother and my father, and I realized that everything I had ever wanted had been given to me in Alcoholics Anonymous and that it would be okay. Somehow it would be okay. I went through all the stages of crazy thinking. I mean, I, at four years sober, I could judge whether you were going to make it or not when you walked in the door. I knew everything. Okay? At four years sober, not only did I know everything, I couldn't control my temper. I finally got my first place to live. Okay? Now, there's a saying, intellect never beats emotion. I move into my first place. It's four o'clock in the morning. Two drunks, two drunks, nasty drunks, are fighting outside of this place, okay? I've been moving furniture all day. I'm tired. They're fighting outside. I go to the door in my underwear, and I go, hey! Sitting there with my fruit of looms, looking like a dope, okay? And they look at me and start laughing. You know, they, they give me this. I run out the door after them like a bat out of hell, okay? Because I'm hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, okay? They start running down the street because they think anyone who's chasing them in their underwear has got to be insane, okay? I get about two blocks from my house. I'm still chasing them barefoot in my underwear, and here come the squad cars. Oh, my God. I dive into the bushes, okay? And I'm thinking, the first thought that comes to my mind is, what would the guys they sponsor think of me right now? What would they think of this picture, okay? And that's at four years sober, Okay? At four years sober, I'm, I mean, intellect never beats emotion. I knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but I was like an open wound, you know? Push the button, baby, and watch what happens, okay? All right? I could not control sometimes my response and my reaction to people, places, and things. Paul, I'd have to call the next day. I ran after two people in my underwear last night. <laughs> You know, thinking that, thinking that just putting that thing down was going to be the solution to the problem. Putting that, getting that crap out of my life. Let me tell you something. It was the steps that answered the prayers to my life. Not that things went well. Right after I lost my company, I got very, very sick with hepatitis C. I was on a liver transplant list. Okay, now I got hepatitis C. I'm on a drug called interferon that's like chemotherapy that creates really extreme depression. And I'm like, you know, geez, I'm sitting in my basement thinking, what the hell is going on here? You know? What is going on? I'm sober. I'm doing what you want me to do. You know something? I prayed for patience, tolerance, love, faith. And every prayer I prayed was answered. The thing is, I don't always like the vehicle that gets me to faith. I don't always like the vehicle that gets me to patience. Okay? Okay? There are learning experiences that have happened in my life that have been very uncomfortable in sobriety. But through the process of walking through them with the wind in my face is where I gained courage and faith in my higher power. And being able to share that with you. And you saying to me, it's going to be okay. You're not alone. Clearing up the wreckage of the past. Making good. Keeping the slate clean in the 10th step. Giving this thing away in the 12th step. Really trying to pray and meditate. I mean, not just lip service. You know, it isn't the stuff I do in front of you that changes my life. It's the stuff I do when no one knows I'm doing it that changes my life. Okay? I mean, I really try and meditate. I'm one of the few people in AA history. I'll tell you this story. When I was new, Paul said, I want you to try and meditate. I said, all right. I don't know what the hell that is. I go down and I, go, I start meditating and I start having dirty thoughts. <laughs> I go upstairs aroused. <laughs> I called Paul, he's, after about two weeks of that, you know, I'm feeling really foul, okay? <laughs> I said, man, you know, you know what's happening? When I, I, I'm trying this meditation thing, and I, I'm reading this 24-hour day book, and, and then pretty soon I'm with this girl. And I'm... He said, stop meditating. Now, stop. 
I want a few guys in the history of alcoholic anonymous told to stop meditating, okay? <laughs> Until I understood exactly what it was for me, okay? But it's the things that no one sees that really keep me sober, okay? You know, it's not me standing up here that's going to do anything for you. You know, the magic is in the trenches for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's in the trenches. Okay? It's that 2 o'clock conversation in the morning with some poor soul in the car who just doesn't believe he's going to be okay. And maybe you say something to him, and you see just a twinkle in his eye for a minute. And then a year later, you see him get his one-year coin. And you know what you feel like? You feel like, gosh, God used me to have something to do with that. And what that does for a drunk who hates himself is it teaches him to love himself. I have a purpose and a path and a mission to follow that I never knew I had before. I am the ant on the log, okay? At times, I think I'm going to control my own destiny. The ant on the log is the 3,000-pound tree falls into a river. And as the river bends and twists and turns, there's an ant on that log. And as the left turn comes, the ant leans and then sticks his chest out after he makes the turn. He doesn't realize he's only along for the ride. He's not steering the log. And what I found out through some of the hardships in Alcoholics Anonymous, through some of my own disappointments and my personal behavior, and some of my shortcomings, and some of the chinks in my armor, and some of my fears, and some of my lack of faith, that it is okay this is not the Knights of Columbus. Okay? This is Alcoholics Anonymous. What's not okay is for me to not do the next right thing that I need to do. Table Rock Lake, Missouri. Six years sober. Somewhere between four and six years. I can't remember. I'm out in the middle of Table Rock Lake, Missouri, and I'm bass fishing, and all of a sudden I'm lost. I'm in a little bass boat. It starts raining. My boat starts filling with water. My, my pumps aren't working. I'm running out of gas. I'm peeing in my pants. I'm getting hypothermic. I'm freezing. I'm shaking. I empty the minnow bucket out, and I'm bailing the boat. I am saying again, why? I prayed this morning. I'm working with newcomers. I'm doing all the stuff you tell me to do. I'm bitching. I'm moaning. I'm swearing. I'm crying. I'm mad at God, but the whole time I was bailing. Okay? The moral of that story is I'm not always going to be happy with what uh, events are occurring in my life. But if I do the next right thing, I'm going to be okay. But God is not going to bail my boat for me. A drowning man does not complain about the color of the life vest you throw him. Okay, He just grabs it. All right? I bailed. And through every instance, you know, I, I, I'd like to stand up here and say it's just been such a smooth ride. But it, it's not been a smooth ride. There's always, you know, this, this mentality that if, if this were different and that were different, I'd be okay. I remember at four years sober, Paulie walked into the meeting and he says to me, what is wrong with you? I'm sitting on one of the couches. I said, what do you mean what's wrong with me? I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have any money. Okay? I live at home with my parents. Okay? I don't have my own place to live. I if I had a little red sports car. Well, you know what? A few years later, I got a little red sports car. I got a blonde to sit in it. I got my own place. I got my own business. Okay? And one day, he walks into the meeting, and I'm sitting in the same couch in the same place, and he says, what the hell's wrong with you? I said, if you had her as a girlfriend, had that house payment, that business run, that car payment, you'd be depressed too. <laughs> It is an ongoing curse for me that I have to constantly re-educate myself to that the solution to my life's problems will never occur outside of me. They will occur inside of me through the process of giving, through the process of doing what the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have suggested I do, to opening myself up to my fellows, to being a part of instead of apart from to doing what looks like sacrificing, but is really just saving my own ass, okay? To praying, really trying to pray, 
to really attempt meditation. Now they all have clothes on. I've come a long way. Okay? I believe uh, that I, I need to be childlike. Um, I now have a three-year-old, Jake. And now i got another one on the way. My wife's 31, I'm 47. <laughs> and we're, uh, number three will be here in October. And uh, you know what? I'm excited as can be about it. A guy like me, a guy that lived the kind of life I lived, can have the life I have today is truly a miracle. There's a story of a, of a little girl who's coloring. She's drawing a picture and her mother says, what are you drawing, honey? She says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And her mother says, but, but no one knows what God looks like. And she holds up the paper and she says, they know now. <laughs> and there's another little story about a kid who's going to Sunday school. Childlike, a little child, looking at the, the wonder of the world. Sees how the birds build their nest high up in the trees. Sees how the squirrels build their nests for the winter. Pulls a piece of sod up and finds a caterpillar and looks at it with amazement. He sees this wonder around him of this world. And he's coming back from Sunday school and his neighbor says, Where you been, son? He says, Been to Sunday school. And his neighbor says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a shiny new dime if you can tell me where God is. And the kid says, I'll give you a buck if you can tell me where he ain't. You see, I don't always see it. I don't always feel it. But as I heard a guy say, it's like a fish swimming in the ocean looking for the water. I think recovery for me has not been a process of acquiring. I think I always was what God wanted me to be. I think my recovery has been a process of getting rid of the things that stood between me and a feeling of worthiness and goodness. And I think the 12 steps were the power brought into my life through the love of the people of Alcoholics Anonymous that allowed me to get rid of the things that stood between me and my higher power, mainly the human ego and self-centeredness. Sometimes I guess I get tired out like everybody else, and sometimes I wonder if, I really wonder if we make a difference, you know? I stood out there last week and I looked in my mom's eyes it was the hardest talk I ever had to give in my life. Because I just love her so much. And she, uh, she prayed me into Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I watched her as I spoke. You know, and I saw reflected back at me exactly the opposite of what those two people reflected at me 20 years ago when they found me in that parking lot. You know, there's a story that I'll end with that I just love. It's about a... It's about a guy walking down a beach in Mexico and uh, in the distance he sees somebody walking towards him and every 10 or 15 feet the guy bends over and picks up something he throws it in the ocean and he's wondering what is this guy doing it's a little closer does it again and again and again finally the tourist says to the man what are you doing he says well it's low tide all these starfish will die if I don't throw them back in the ocean. And the man says, but there's hundreds of thousands of starfish on the beach. You can't possibly make a difference. And he bent over and he picked one up and he threw it in the ocean and he said it made a difference to that one. I don't know when I'm going to make a difference. I know when I won't. I don't know when I will, but I know when I won't. And I'll end with this thought. I am grateful for every day of sober living that I've had. I believe that I have a daily reprieve that is based on my spiritual conditioning, and I think I see most of the time that the glass is half full today. I have occasional brain farts and hiccups where life doesn't look so good. But in reality, uh, I think my perception has changed enormously over 20 years. And I have a great attitude and outlook on life most of the time today. And I appreciate every sober breath I take. And I heard this little girl at our meeting, and I almost fell off the seat when she said this. And I don't know where this came from. She said, I asked my sponsor if I was going to be okay. And my sponsor said to me, 
I can't promise you that the gates of heaven will open up and let you in. But I can promise you that the gates of hell will open up and let you out. And that made sense to me. Life is to be lived and enjoyed today. There will be moments of crisis. There will be life. There will be death. There will be birth. There will be happiness. There will be sorrow. The good thing is that I can experience it all without ever having to run away again. Thanks to you guys. Thank you. Thank you.